All right, good morning. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and begin. My name is Dennis Steele, and I'm substituting for Tim this morning. And so let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Dear Holy Father, we thank you so much for your many blessings to us, uh, for the wonderfulness of your character that you have given us evidence in the scriptures, and that we have an opportunity to study and look at this morning. I pray that your spirit would be here and influence our minds and guide and direct us. Maybe we open to your spirit this morning in thy name. Amen. Well, we have an interesting lesson. Uh, it's packaged uniquely as I've worked through it over the week. Um, lesson eight, conformity, compromise, and crisis in worship. Do I have a volunteer that'd be willing to read uh, the memory text this morning? It comes from Hebrews 5.14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So there's a maturation process here that if you are young and small, you, you eat Gerber's or something like that, and then as you mature, you go on to more solid things. And in our spiritual journey, it should be a similar process, right? We should come to a maturity where we now have as palatable things that are more solid, not necessarily just uh, pureed items or milk necessarily. And this lesson starts out Sabbath afternoon in uh, relating about evil. And that's pretty much most of the lesson is going to discuss of it, it in those in the context of idolatry. And uh, it discusses uh, the book written by William Golding, uh, The Lord of the Flies, and the evil represented there. And of course, it's quite astounding in that book because it is children that perpetrate the crimes, not hardened adults. And as we come down here, one of the things that, you know, the author of the lesson at least seems to be going in is a concern of what is evil. And so I'm going to ask you, what is evil or sin? What would your definition be? The opposite of what is right. Okay, the opposite of what is right. Any others? Russell. Scripture describes sin as lawlessness. Okay, lawlessness, very good. What else? And if, law, if lawlessness is the opposite of what law-keeping is, and the Bible defines law-keeping as love, then wouldn't sin be a lack of love or selfishness? Okay, self-centeredness. What else? Rebellion. Rebellion? Variance from God's character. Okay, variance from God's character. All very good. Um... Ones that a text that comes to mind is Romans fourteen twenty three, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, but because his eating not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. A break of trust, right, with God, is part of the rebellion against God and His character. Right, well put by several of you. So that would seem to be what what is evil or sin. And I guess the reason I ask that is the author seems very concerned that, um, and, and as we should be, that evil is something to be worried about. Certainly I think there's an element of concern there, but what's more uh, of importance it seems to me is 
who do we think about God and what does he offer to remedy the sin problem, right? So um, we'll move on from there. So how are we... Go ahead. I think most commonly sin is viewed by most people as breaking a law. Right. The Bible says that it is being without law, so it's no law to break. Right. I think that's the way it could be interpreted. It's a heart thing. Many times with sin, don't we think of it in terms of actions or deeds done or certain things? And isn't it more than that? One could do something, I'm not saying sinful, and pass it off as righteousness, but certainly it's more than that. It's an attitude, right? It's a mindset that is there. Um, so I, here's another question I have for you. How are we healed of evil and what might be included in the process? Obviously, if evil is bad, and it is, I mean, we're not going to couch it as something that it's not, but if it is, how are we healed? How are we fixed? By an attitude change. Okay, an attitude adjustment. You know, when I was little and I was kind of being troublesome, sometimes I was encouraged to have an attitude adjustment. Have you ever been told that? Um, so maybe an attitude adjustment. How does that happen, though? Conversion. Conversion. Yes, ma'am. A new heart. A new heart. In other words, yeah, Russell? Going back to the text that you quoted from Romans, evil or sin being of not having faith and not having trust, we, we, need, to, we need to have a, a being that we trust, a physician. Okay. As the model that we understand that we trust in order to take the first step to, to being healed. If you don't trust your physician, you're not going to take the remedy. Exactly. That's great. And you, ma'am? The Bible says the love of Christ constrains us. Okay. So I think, if, for me, if I go to Calvary and just look there for a while, okay. I'll adjust my attitude and the attitude of love for God. Certainly, looking at the evidences God has. And yes, you, ma'am? Well, I... I think that it's the answer to the mystery in Colossians 1, 27 and 28. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay. Inviting God's lordship in our lives, inviting his healing presence into our hearts. By beholding, we become changed. Okay, very good. Yes. Uh, those are all the, many of the things that I was uh, noticing in it. In fact, Something that struck me, I had been reading Desire of Ages, was how Jesus, in his early formative years, Desire of Ages, page 70, uh, is mentioned as how he, at least, obviously not already being infected with sin, had a um, slightly different approach, but is an example nonetheless to us. Communion with God through prayer develops the mental and moral faculties and the spiritual powers strengthen as we cultivate thoughts upon spiritual things. And then going on another place in Desire of Ages, page 72, he was able to discern evil and strong to resist it. I believe he offers that to each of us in his healing remedy. And so we too can resist evil. Um, this particular lesson is concerned obviously with evil, but it's also concerned with evil in the context of worship. So what is worship? If we're going to be concerned about potentially being worshiping in a way that would lead us away from God, what then is true worship? Does anybody have a definition or a, 
a way of picturing what true worship might be. <coughs> in light of the lesson, true worship was to occur at a certain place uh, in Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, so that could be one... One definition. In other words... We do it in a certain order. Uh, the you know the prayer happens first, and then there's an opening song that praises God, and there's the you know the offering and the doxology, and there's uh, opening prayer, and then there's the sermon, and then there's the benediction. Right? That would be a definition. Could that be a definition of true worship? No. Not sure about that. Okay. Not necessarily. Okay. Yes. I think worship is extolling God's character. Okay. Extolling God's character. <clears throat> one time where Ellen White said that true worship is wholeness, it's wholeness to God. And you can't really have that wholehearted devotion to God unless you really understand who he is and see him for what he is. A devotion to a true God, to yeah. what it really is God. Okay. Yes. Homage, uh, uh, I, I guess it would be sort of like uh, in, in, uh, something you idolize, like Christ. You, you'd have to really look up to the to worship the person. You've got to really have a lot of respect and, and okay. figure and so forth. Okay, Russell. Well, human beings were created to worship. Mm-hmm. the The problem is that we're going to worship something. Okay. You know, Very good. Earlier, uh, by beholding, we become changed. Whatever it is that we hold up as as, as worshipful, we're, we're going to worship. Even if you even if you don't acknowledge uh, that a God exists, you're still worshiping something, right? Whether it's money, or whether it's uh, your spouse, or whether it's uh, your children, or, or whatever it is, we're, we're all we're all worshiping something. So we all want to fill that vacuum. The problem, yeah. The problem is, is that we need to find that. A, a loving and caring God is the only thing that we can recognize that is above our, above our human elevation. And that's the only thing that's going to elevate us beyond uh, what we are now. Okay, wonderful. Yes? Um, in hopes of redeeming myself a little bit. Oh, no, and I, and I didn't mean to make fun of you at all. I'm just... A little bit. But the location <clears throat> seems to provide... It, it's not that there's something of intrinsic value to a specific location. But locations help focus on... Certainly, certainly. On concepts. Right. That that lead to worship. Right. And and certainly that can assist in in pointing us potentially in the right direction. You're you're correct on that. Um, What's true worship? And And so here's something I got from the Review and Herald, August 16, 1881, that Ellen White wrote. True worship consists in working together with Christ. Prayers, exhortation, and talk are cheap fruits. thought that was interesting. Which are frequently tied on, but fruits that are manifested in good works, in caring for the needy, the fatherless, and widows are genuine fruits and growing naturally upon a good tree. So what does that tell me? Worship is other-centered love, right? And um, as was well put, it's who we admire and worship. We have a God that's that way. Will we not worship him and reflect that character as well in our own lives? Um, 
So what do you think? And much of this lesson, of course, deals with in a Bible. In the Bible, we have the Israelites, which are God's spokespeople to reaching other people. Why, what do you think God's intention was for them, the Israelites? I mean, obviously, they, they, he had a plan there that he hoped that he might use these individuals. And I think the plan is probably the same for us, too. What was it that he hoped to achieve, do you think? They would be an example to the nations around them. Okay, so they would be an example. What would that example look like? Okay, reflect his character. What's his character? Love. What is love? Other-centeredness. What's other-centeredness? I'm going to keep pulling. Because, I mean, it's easy to say these things, but how do we boil this down into something that's everyday practical? But we can say that, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be other-centered? Okay, not thinking of ourselves. It reminds me of Mother Teresa. Okay. She helped the poor and worked for others. But when it came to actual prayer, she didn't have much to say to God. Okay. Didn't have words. All right. Anybody else? It it seems to be that in other centers, it's going out of our way when it might be costly to ourselves potentially to reach out to someone else, to help somebody else. And I'm not saying, you know, it's something that I'm on the journey of learning myself too, of being healed of, right? We, we all are on uh, a journey to letting God allow him to heal us so that we can reflect that. But it's much more, I think, than just simply showing up at a specific location, a sanctuary, and having a service, and we say that's worship. This is something, does it encouch much more than that? Is it something that pervades your entire life, potentially? Yes. It would, right? In other words, you could be worshiping um, any day of the week then, any hour of the day. Um, so it's much, a much broader context than sometimes I think we think about worship as being just a certain day, a certain set of hours that we do something. Yes? Um, I think... I've heard quite a bit, though, term corporate worship. Okay. I think when we go to church, a lot of us go to church for the corporate part, because if we just sat home, we would have our own viewpoints only. You know, but if we come out, then whatever the pastor chose to speak about, God probably inspired his mind to reach people to something that they, their mind hadn't gotten to yet. You know, or the people who are uh, doing the song service. They're choosing songs that feed their soul and imparting the feeding of soul, other people's souls. So I think, I think as, as we come to a corporate worship, you know, we are coming to worship because the people who picked out what we're doing are worshiping and what they picked out. And we join their worship and rise to their level of, of whatever it is that they wanted to share. Excellent point. And by what I've been saying, I'm not saying that church is unimportant. One could misconstrue what I have said maybe to, say, to think that. Certainly church worship, corporate worship is important. Um, it's just it's much bigger than that. It's a, a lot broader it seems to me. Um, Let's move on to uh, Sunday's lesson. Um, Reading through this, just as a preview of some of my questions here for you, and maybe that you have, uh, is 
the author of the, the lesson seems quite concerned that somehow, and certainly we are fallible human beings that are sinful, predisposed to sin, we can get ourselves into trouble pretty quick. That's not too, that's not too hard. The author, though, seems very concerned that sin is lurking in the bushes and when you walk out of here, you might get jumped. Um, that may happen, but I'm not so sure, is it so important to focus on that or is it to focus on something else? Should we be focusing all the time on the booger bears in the, in the bushes? Or should we be focused on the person that can fix the problem? Right. If you focus on the things that are lurking, what's likely to happen to you, as we've already said, right? Many of us said, as we be whole, we become changed. If we stay focused on the problems, what will we become? We are going to become the problem, aren't we? We are already the problem. We just become a better manifestation of it, right? And I think all of us probably, and this is not, this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. I don't want to see hands. Know that in our own lives, you know that there has been some issue that you didn't like about your character and maybe you tried to address it in ways that were not necessarily biblical. And guess what? Did you get rid of the problem? No, you just became more like it. I know that I have experienced that. But you don't have to raise your hands and say, yes, I did that. But maybe think about it in your mind and, and contemplate that. Could I have four volunteers that would be read, willing to read some texts for me? Okay, Eve, would you please read uh, Genesis 6-5? And ma'am, back in the day, I don't, I don't remember your name if I did uh, get it. Jeremiah 17-5. And do I have two more? Yes, sir. Would you be willing to read John 2.25 and one more? Romans 3, 9 to 12. You get a little longer one, but good stuff. Okay, Eve, if you're ready, go ahead and read this. And what we're looking for, think about this class as we're listening to this. What is the common denominator that seems to pervade throughout these texts? The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. <coughs> okay, thank you, Eve. Yes, ma'am. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Can I read a couple of verses to form the context? You sure can, if you wish. We're just... Jumping in the middle of it here, it says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And he needed not, this is verse 25, and he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Thank you. Uh, Romans 3, 9 to 12. So where does that put us? Do we Jews get a better break than the others? Not really. Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody who knows the score, nobody alert to God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Okay, so what did you get? What did you go away with that you seem to read 
and maybe you've already read and preparing for class today, and so maybe you've already put this together. What did you conclude from all of those? Sometimes it's hard sitting in a class listening to people read to formulate your thoughts, but what did you come away with? They all turned away from God. Okay, they turned away from God. And what was that? We've already given a definition of what um, God's character is like, so what is that? We're all selfish. We're all selfish, self-centered, right? And and our thoughts are evil continually. We're pretty messed up. Um, And we've been damaged by sin. Um, So in continuing with sort of how the lesson is going here, this is another question that I thought of. You know, in some areas, as I've already alluded to in our lives, we struggle Why do you think it is that we have trouble surrendering to God and allowing His Holy Spirit to heal us in those areas? What is it that you think maybe hangs us up? What's in it for me? Okay, again, back back to the selfishness and the natural nature, right? Um, My text that I read, it says, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. So it seems like not only do we trust in ourselves, but we trust in all the other losers around us. How, how, how many of you, that's a great comment. How many of you, and I'm guilty of this, I love to seek advice. How many of you will run, before you pray, will run to some colleague or friend and open up your heart to them and hope that somehow they will have the healing remedy? Uh, you don't have to raise your hand because I, I will, because I've done it. But for the rest of you, we can just contemplate and think about, hmm, maybe that doesn't work too well. And how did that work for you? Now, maybe the person was, and, and this doesn't mean we shouldn't get help from others or uh, seek support from others, because certainly God uses each of us to touch somebody else's life. Hopefully, your experience with God will be such that you'll reflect his character. You'll reach out to that person, right? And you'll point him in the right direction. But there is a tendency to seek help from somebody who's not God. I think the reason for that is because we like skin. You know, God God doesn't have skin for us. He can't give us a hug. He can't give us a pat on the back. He can't He can't speak where I can hear it in my ear. Right. Speak in my head. You know, I think we like we like hugs from other people. We like to be close to people. We like their sympathy. We like to hear a voice. And I think as our faith grows, we may hear more voice. You know, but you have to have great faith to believe that God is talking to you because you don't hear him in your ears. Very good. So maybe we're the arms um, and ears and voice for God at times. Uh, at, not that we personally are God. Certainly that would kind of change things. But maybe he can use us to reach others in, in such a way as that. Um, so, and I think this leads us down to the uh, a track of, of thinking then. If we run to others and that's not necessarily the best solution and you just mentioned, you know, we want to hear audibly that God is listening to us or something else. How is it then if that's not the preferred, that's maybe a secondary or third really priority option, how do we then get to know who God's character is? I mean, if he's the one that we should be approaching, how do we go about that? Through his word. Okay, through his word. Claiming his promises. Okay, claiming his promises. What else? Looking at Jesus. 
What else? Prayer. Prayer. Would it be important how you pictured God? If the God you serve doesn't really care about your problems, will you find a solution likely or feel that he has much that he can do for you? Probably not. The good news is that if we read the Bible, not just uh, key texts, but if we read it broadly, right? Taking in all of the passages of Scripture, all of the history, all of the things that God has done, um, if you were to trust somebody, would you want to know just them? Let's say that you knew them after they, you'd had one experience with them. You didn't know them very well. You thought they were a pretty nice person. Would you trust them just on that one experience? Or would you trust somebody more if you had many experiences? You had been with them through thick and thin and you knew how they would respond in each of those cases. Which would give you more confidence? The one experience? Well, maybe. Or the one with many varied Many different situations, many different attitudes. You'd seen them when it was really hot and they were, you were tired and things weren't going well and you had been with them when things were great. So you kind of had a better picture. And I think the Bible gives that opportunity for us to see God in the light of all of these varied situations. How does he work with humanity? How does he work with his beings throughout the universe? And that should give us confidence then, right? As we see his interactions with us. And we take it all together. Um, I like this quote from Christ's Objects Lessons, page 38. The word of God is the seed. Every seed has in itself a germinating principle. In it, the life of the plant is enfolded. So there is, in the li- is life in God's word. Christ says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He that heareth my word and believeth on him, I'm sorry, him that sent me hath everlasting life. In every command and every promise of the word of God is the power, the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. He who by faith receives the word is receiving the very life and character of God. And I think that last sentence is the most powerful. So, If we want to come to know the character of God, it's going to have to come only as we spend time in the Word and communing. I think it's even more than that. It's praying and conversing with God, being open to the impressions of the Holy Spirit. Um, In Monday's lesson, if we move on, uh, the author is very worried about compromise. Are you worried about compromise? Are you scared of it? What is compromise? Negotiation. Negotiation, okay. Some compromise is good. Oh, that's my question. Is compromise in and of itself evil? How many of you would have arrived here intact this morning had you not compromised with your spouse or other or brother or sister or parent or... um, It seems like my life is full of compromise, so maybe you should ship me away, you know. (laughs) I'm a goner, yes. Compromise involves selflessness. Yeah, what about that? When my son wants to go somewhere else or do something else than I want to do, and you've got to say, 
man, what do we do? Um, it entails compromise. Um, and so is compromise evil? And though, and though the author, fair enough, uh, does give a caveat for it, I, I thought there was more concern. What should we really be concerned about with compromise? Don't compromise our principles. Okay. The, the really important thing not to compromise on is the truth about God. Okay. It's not a matter of music or, or, you know, the color of the carpet or whatever else it might be, but it's the big universal kind of things that matter that you don't want to compromise on. <laughs> so could we say, and I, I appreciate both of your comments, could we not say then, it's not compromise that's the problem, it is what we compromise. Would that be fair enough? It's what we compromise, right? I mean, if we compromise what you wear or where you go or what you eat or you know, many of the other things that are not of consequence, that's part of getting along in life. I mean, how many of us have, ser- have served on a team or committee or something else and you know, you just have to compromise. It's difficult at times, especially if we're passionate about whatever it is that we're discussing, to lay aside those, and maybe that's where that selflessness comes in. Um, And maybe committees we would like to join more often if that was the spirit of the committee, um, that that was the case. But certainly, compromise is something that... um, I don't think in itself is evil. It is what we compromise that's more important. Um, so why or what would lead us, since we've come to that the more important things are the character of God, um, the issues of the great controversy, and who God is, why or what would lead us to compromise in allowing God to heal and change us, and thus fail to reflect his character, and, and or ultimately even reject God? What is it that would lead us to compromise those things? Okay, our feelings. Yes, sir. We we know that that Satan's goal is to transform us into his character. Okay. And God has put a law in effect that by beholding we become changed. Uh Uh-huh. So if we're worshiping a God with the character of Satan, who are we becoming like? Wonderful comment. Fantastic, yes. Any others? Sometimes we don't want to give up the things that that are so important to us. We feel like we have to give up all kinds of fun things, and so we don't want to let God into our lives. We feel like that would have that would be a compromise. Okay, there's hindrances. Maybe we're still hanging on to baggage or things. How about fear? Um, I know if you attended one church service here in the area, you heard about fear, fear and how we respond to fear. A good, good sermon, I felt. But fear sometimes motivates us to do things... Um, Maybe not the best way. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. People you with, yeah, or that you ought to be with people that are, if they uh, if they're negative people or something, it's not good to be around them. Or or if they're unchristian lives that they've got, it's probably good to pretty much stay clear of them. Okay. Again, come at the becoming, um, beholding, we become changed. Um, here are some of the thoughts I had, and I think they go along with some of the comments I already made. Um, you know, fear and believing Satan's lies about God, they create a, a breakdown in trust. And I think that those fears and those kinds of attitudes would, would be a problem. The lesson then goes on to give us a biblical story that kind of shows somebody who experienced uh, 
this breakdown. All of us remember the story of Solomon and uh, the fact that he had many foreign wives and concubines. I don't know how he kept track of all of that, but I guess when you're king, you can somehow afford to have people to keep track of all that or something. But it had an influence on him. Does anyone remember what the influence was on his life? Started worshiping idols. Okay, started worshiping idols. Now, did he just run out and uh, the first time and accept these? Obviously, he married these ladies. Um, they, of course, wanted to worship in their own unique way, and I'm sure they pestered him to have their specific worship site or whatever. Do you think he just ran out and started worshiping idols? How did it happen? How does a man who's, according to Scripture, the most brilliant man that has lived the earth, uh, that God endowed with these gifts and allowed him to abuse those gifts, gave him the freedom to exercise them, how does he go from the pinnacle to the depths of degradation? Compromise. Compromise. Okay, that evil word, right? <laughs> but what did he compromise? Principle. His love for God, his devotion to his creator. Right. He changed. He changed worshiping a God of truth, a God that was selfless and kind of love. And what did he start to worship? What kind of... By the way, um, does anyone know... Um, have you done any research or looked up who Baal was, who Moloch, who Chemosh was, who Ashtoreth was? Who were these deities? Were these good people, fun people to be with? Were these people you wanted to invite home after Sabbath lunch and have a good conversation with? Um, here's what I, and just looking around online, so I, I, I intended to get over the library and do some more looking at it, and I, I didn't get there, but... Um, Let's take a look at these different deities. Because I think sometimes in Christianity, especially this far away, and by the way, don't fool yourself to believe that there's not pagans today. Uh, anybody heard of Burning Man? Yes. It happens out in the deserts of Nevada. It's a pagan festival. Uh, you can go out there and express yourself. In fact, if you go to their website, it says, the ultimate in freedom of expression. Uh, many different things. It's an interesting uh, place to be, I'm sure. Uh, everybody expresses themselves freely, and at the end of the festival, they burn this towering, hundred-foot-tall conglomeration of wood and whatever meant to look like a man. So, um, and there's other things that happen in society that one, if looked at diligently enough, might say, hmm, not sure that that's not a pagan festival. We kind of couch it in secularism. We say, oh, that's just, you know, a fun activity to go do. We don't think anything about it. And I'm not going to try to dictate what those are. But let's, let's look here. Molech. Uh, the God, the, his name means king. Uh, he required human sacrifices uh, in the form of children placed uh, where he had like these hot, he was made out of brass, and I will try not to be too graphic, but essentially he had these brass arms. He was heated internally until he was white hot. You place the sacrifice in the arms while still alive. And as you can imagine, that was not a pleasant experience. You burned incense to disguise the smell of burning flesh. And you beat drums really hard so you didn't hear them screaming. Uh, and that was to incur his favor and delight, and also to ward off any anger he might have towards you. Chemosh. 
Uh, he's kind of a, and many of these gods in their mythological, pantheistic view of, of looking at things blend together. They all have attributes that are very similar. In fact, they kind of ooze, is the best term, out from each other. In other words, they take on similar names, similar characteristics. So it's hard to pin down and say this god is, you know, separate from this one because they all sort of kind of ran in the same vein. Uh, it was a variation of either Ashtar, the male form of Ashtoreth. So you had a female Ashtoreth, you had Ashtar. Some of them were gender neuter. Um, so in this case, it was the male form. They also, or Bale, human sacrifices were part of the rites in order to secure his favor. Bale, he was the male counterpart and was seen as being uh, in a relationship with Ashtoreth, if I understand it correctly. He controlled... Of course, he was the one who was the golden calf, the bull. He controlled the storm clouds, the rain, the thunder, the lightning. Those were his specialties. Fertility, of course, was a part of that because that's, of course, related. And um, his name means lord or master. Demonic lord of the flies is considered a part of Beelzebub. Baal, uh, interestingly, did, did not acknowledge death. Who's the other entity we know of who doesn't acknowledge that there's death? Um, Satan, right? That was the first deception. There is no death if you choose to rebel and break relationship with God, right? The worship included human sacrifice and prostitution as part of the worship service. If you went to church, you had a real experience. Um, you had known you had been to church that day. I don't know if anybody knows an answer to this, but, but why, if that was so popular then, why is it Nobody likes that now, what you're talking about, those gods. I would argue they do like it. I, I, I mean, you have a big point. Worshipping the, the beer bottle or a cigarette, that, 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 that's different what you're talking about. These uh, specific worship to these gods and that type of activity, why it's common. Same thing happened these people where they're at. Okay. So he knows their weaknesses, he knows their hearts. And evidently these people were open to that type of worship where, they, where he could succeed, where it's not now so prevalent or, you know, that they would be... From where human life was so cheap back then to where it's okay. so sacred right now. And it's, it's... I think that's one, maybe the only key difference. But if you've been to a non, uh, dare I say, and I'm not even cautious to say this, but if you go to... Those of us that have attended other state schools and stuff, and you've seen the fraternities and sororities, I dare say that many of the activities that take place are not far from this. There may not be actually human sacrifices, but I can tell you the experiences those people have is close to this. This is the, almost the same. I think I would you know, be fooling myself not to believe that. I think there's a lot of people in our world today who love to, to watch torture chamber stuff on TV. Oh, yes. And sadistic things. It, it, some people are, I mean, some people, they look at that and they think, wow, that person has so much power. You know, I'm glad you bring this up because... You know, with Moloch, you don't want to watch human sacrifice, but I bet you when Solomon went and he saw that big God, you know, taking this child and, and he won't be angry at the people anymore. You know, if you watch that stuff long enough, your mind can turn and become that this is okay. Russell. We often view Satan as a, a being that that doesn't learn anything. You know, he knew everything that he would ever know at uh -huh. creation. And yet, 
I, I honestly think that he's still learning. Sure. He's adapting, and he's changing his methods and principles to, uh, like was said over here, to meet us at where we're at situation. And then the one one common theme uh, running through all of these uh, characters that you've mentioned is the need for appeasement. Okay, very good. Not only so okay, he's eradicated human sacrifice from from uh, the 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 worship, but he's now entwined that into uh, the character of God. Is his yeah. presentation of the character of God? It needs appeasement. Needs the sacrifice of his son to be happy. Right. Uh, it's still there. We, we do. We adopt it in the forms. And, you know, I'm so glad that you brought up the horror things, that we like to watch these things. And, and isn't there not a culture of, of, of watching, if it, even if it's fake, wanting the adrenaline rush that you get from experiencing that kind of horror, whatever it may be, chainsaw massacre or whatever, and I don't know because I haven't viewed that, but should you have, um, there may be an adrenaline rush to that, uh, of seeing people... Um, subjected to things that they shouldn't be um go ahead there's a lot of uh killing in the name of god okay that that might be a sort of human sacrifice type thing that's great my wife and i were visiting her parents in upstate new york and a gentleman murdered a young girl and his reason was that jesus told him to do it that was going to be his defense um because who can argue with Jesus, right? Um, anyway, Solomon degraded himself. And I think it's interesting to hear how Scripture, how God dealt with Solomon. Um, God is very gracious. And even though we get off track and we start heading down a wrong trail of how he does it, twice he tried to communicate with Solomon to get his attention, to call him back and to say, you're heading down something that's so destructive to you and the people who are your subjects. And he refused to listen. And so God, you know, many times must use emergency measures to get our attention in order to continue to communicate with us because if we have so turned off our hearing of his still small voice, we sometimes need louder messages because he doesn't want us to ultimately end up with the consequences of sin. And so he told Solomon he was going to rip the kingdom from him. And though his father had been good, he would still do it. And his family would only lead one of the, uh, two of the tribes and the other ten would be given to another. And in that process, Jeroboam, who happened to be a labor leader, I don't know if it was unions or what, but they led the work of the people, the descendants of Joseph, he was tapped. Ahijah the prophet met him coming out of Jerusalem and he said, the kingdom's going to be torn away from Solomon and you're going to get ten tribes to rule up. Well, uh, Solomon, of course, had hired him as a labor leader because he was very good at what he did. But he was also somewhat of a rebel and that came to his attention of Solomon as well and he had to run for his life and he went to Egypt to hang out for a while this can be found in 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12 if you want to read it later today um, so Rehoboam, sorry, Jeroboam waits until Solomon hears word that he's dead and he comes back and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is going to be coronated. And of course, if you've read this story, it's rather interesting how he seeks counsel from the wise leaders that have counseled Solomon. 
doesn't kind of like what they have to say. So he goes to the young bucks, the Turks that he grew up with, who are all cocky and sassy, and they think they know what makes the world run. Sometimes those of us that teach find students that are like that. Um, and they don't think you have anything to offer them. So I'm not sure why they're there, but they are there. And uh, he, he goes to them and they say, guess what? The way to really work this is to go out. And what the people were upset about is to build Solomon's gorgeous empire, he had to extract a lot of, as we would put in finance term, rents. And the way he extracted rents is you paid hefty taxes, big taxes, to support all of this infrastructure. And so... The people were about to just collapse under it, and so they were asking for a reprieve. And Rehoboam unwisely listened to the young Turks and said, You know what? Uh, My little finger's bigger than my daddy's backside, hips, waist. I can really take you guys down a notch. You think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. Well, that incited popular revolt. They stoned his labor leader of that time. He ran for his life back to um, Jerusalem, and Jeroboam was elected king or coronated over the ten tribes. Now, you would say, oh, wow, you know, you think that uh, Jeroboam should have listened to Ahijah. Maybe he should have focused on God. uh, Because obviously God had said, the ten are yours to take care of. But that didn't seem to be good enough for him. He was a little concerned. And so he created a... And his big concern was what? Does anyone know the story? What was his big worry? That they would go to Jerusalem to worship and their loyalties would turn... Oh, beautiful. Yes. If I go back to Jerusalem and I start worshiping God there, I'll start to feel good and cozy. And maybe, you know, Rehoboam's not that bad of a guy. You know, maybe he's okay. You know, he is worshiping the true God and everything. And so Jeroboam got concerned that the people would go to Jerusalem too often and too frequently and decide to re, um, you know, he would be his head cut off. You don't, you don't become a traitor, a, a spurious king. He didn't trust God. He became afraid. And so then what did he do? He created an alternate worship service style location He said, Dan and Bethel are going to be the worship locations. And you know, you folks, I know you need a real good experience. In fact, I know that you like going up to Jerusalem. It's exciting. There's that beautiful Solomon's temple. There's all of that pomp and circumstance that goes along that captivates you. You got to check out what I got. I got these golden calves, man. You think you could, you you don't see God at Jerusalem. I can, I can have God in front of you. A visible form of the deity right there. And you can worship him. And we'll also put it in lovely places. The sinners will be in these on the mountaintops in the groves where like the pagans are. So man, you'll get, you get to have a really neat experience here. So he appealed to their imagination and their senses. And that's where they ended up going. Um, and that leads us into my next question. What is idolatry? Because that's really what the lesson is all about. There's this concern in the lesson throughout it. It pervades it. That you might slip up the booger bears in the trees and behind the bushes. And you might just slip and one day find yourself bowing down to Baal. That would be a terrifying, you know, whatever creates that would be terrifying. And it is. I'm not trying to make light of the fact that people that end up there. But I want to look at how is it? How is it that you could end up there? How could you be like Solomon and degrade yourself to that level? 
throwing your child into some fiery, molten uh, idol's arms. And he did. It's not just, you know, speculation. The man did, says, the scripture says that he did. I think it's just one step after another of receiving Satan's lies and his deceptions. Okay. Exchanging the true picture of God for the false, right? What is it that is so captivating to human beings? I think that too much time in Christianity, we spend too little time of trying to understand why God was so against idolatry. Is it just because he didn't want you to have fun? You could have too much fun? At the idolatrous services? What is it ultimately that God is so concerned about with idolatry? And we look at it today as modern Christians and we say, "Ah, there's no Baal worship around. There's nothing happening, right? I don't have to worry about it. We think that anyway. Yes, sir, in the back. Anything that takes first place in your life becomes idolatry. Okay. Something that we transfer? Yes, sir. Uh, There's a good passage in in Jeremiah. Okay. It addresses this uh, 16, 19 and following. The Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. So I think it's lies. Okay. Be lies and what God is, what he's like, what he, how he interacts with his, his created world. Excellent. What is it about the lives that are so devastating to us? What is it that it does to you and me and, and everybody? Well, we're sick and God wants to heal us. Okay. Anything that isn't God won't heal us. Okay, very good. What else will it do to you? Emotionally, psychologically? Change the way you relate to other people. Okay, very good. Whose character then do you adopt? Okay. Do you wake up in the morning? You look like Molech, maybe. No joke. I mean, you think about it. And how do we see the people of Israel? If we look at their long history, hundreds of years, thousands of years, who did they turn themselves into? They loved this kind of stuff. I mean, God couldn't keep them away from it. What did they turn into? If you've read any of the stories of leading up to, the, to, the, to, be, to when they were led off to Babylon... What did these folks, what were they like? What did God keep saying in Jeremiah, Isaiah? What did he keep appealing to them to change? What was it that was wrong with... And it's not just, it's not the deeds, the things they were doing. That shows what's been transformed in the character. But what did that demonstrate about their characters? What were these people like? They were heartless, selfish. In fact, Jeremiah begged them to give up slavery. They were enslaving one another, which was they were never to have done. And what did they do? They tried it out for a week, or I, and I say that, but they shorted it out for a very short period of time. And, you know, the, the beds didn't get made and the pots didn't get scrubbed or whatever, and they were right back to it. They couldn't stand. And it's, and it's, and it's the selfish. It's what it does to us and our minds and our hearts. And if you go far enough into idolatry, um, and by the grace of God, God can reach and heal many of us who have gone very far. But ultimately, what happens to you? What happened to Satan? If we think about it, what ultimately has happened to him as he has taken up his thought, as he's believed the lies he's created? That's true. But what, but what has happened to his conscience? What has his ability to turn? He's seared. 
He cannot come back and be the same person. Is that not what God is worried about? That ultimately, we so damage ourselves that what happens? We will not respond to that small, still voice that reaches out to us. Now, I'm not trying to scare people here, you know, about close of probation or anything, but ultimately, I think that's what God's worried about, right? How else would it be? A false picture of his uh, character uh, is totally damaging to us. And I think sometimes we brush over that, we run on, we say, okay, idols were bad in the, ba- in the day, but we have no concept of what we're really talking about because we don't think about it in that thing. Um, go ahead, Russell. It goes, it goes much further than that. Okay. That were around in Christ's day were bowing down to, to golden calves, but they still had such a, a distorted God's concept that when he came and, and walked among them and taught among them, they, they murdered him. So then we can take that picture that we've created, the lies we believe, and we project it on God. Yeah. And we say, well, that's what God's like. So let me introduce you. You know, we're in an evangelistic movement here. We want you to come and be a part of this. Yeah, that's great. And so then we steer other people away. Or we kill God himself. Uh, in the case of, uh, in the story with Jeroboam, uh, there were some people who didn't agree with what he was doing. Okay. He couldn't uh, evidently entice the Levites. Right. Participate. Right. That's why he turned to the to the lower. Right. Term scripture uses the lower uh, people. Okay. For, for the priests. Right. And prophets and kings points out that uh, the Thank Levites you. and some of the others actually did go. Sure. To Jerusalem. Um, and, and they fled. Now, there, there are two concepts in here that we've been, well, one we've been talking about, and that's the personal. Okay. What a person does. Right, certainly. What's spilled over in leadership as far as Solomon, David, you can pick just about any one of them. What's spilled over from their personal life to their, into their position. Okay. Uh-huh into the company, let's say. Right. Was their immorality in the one area spilled over and then started infecting everybody else. Sure. And this is where the real evil occurs that needs to be addressed. The position, the the stuff that occurs in the position, maybe not necessarily pointing fingers at a person, okay, and, and in their personal life, but you have to address what's going on in the position. Right. And we see that with Moses. God took very strong measures with Moses when he moved, moved in a way that God had not ordained because of his role. Um, I think it, sent a, it was to send a message to the Israelites. This isn't God. You've misrepresented my character grossly. And you are in a position that um, is very important, that influences that. So I see what you're saying. Yes. Yes, ma'am. I have a tongue-in-cheek comment. Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe that Levites couldn't be enticed because they were they're fanatical. Okay. You know, and I think I mean, the Bible says, "Be ye holy, for I am holy," and we are to be holy people seven days a week, not one day a week. Okay. And and not worry about whether people call us fanatical or not. We are to be holy as God is holy. Thank you. Um, I've kind of run ahead of myself here with some of my questions. If we move on just briefly, and then we're going to have to tie it up. 
to Wednesday. Um, This is probably the most significant, and in some ways, while the others impact our lives, our picture of God is is very important. Um, The Elijah experience on Mount Carmel, we're all familiar with, I hope, of how Elijah, it begins with the story of Elijah going to Ahab and saying it's not going to rain. Because again, these people are worshiping Baal, who is the rain god. How best to show a god is impotent than for God to say, well, you know, if Baal's really in control, then you ought to beg him and he'll make it rain. So there, you can believe that, you know, the first year, people are saying, okay, you know, this is a little anomaly, but Baal's going to get his act together, right? He's going to show good. Well, second year rolls around. By the third year, when your crops are dead, your animals are dead, you're about dead, you might begin to wonder whether Baal is listening. Uh, And I'm sure, you know, the human sacrifices picked up as we got closer. The third year, you know, hey, got to really shake him up. Maybe he's not listening. And in fact, Elijah even encourages this. So Elijah then comes back to Ahab, invites um, Ahab to invite all of the 400 prophets of Baal, the four, uh, I'm sorry, the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 uh, prophets of Ashtoreth to come up to the mountaintop, and they're going to have a showdown between the gods. And God is very gracious, as I see it portrayed in this. He allows Baal all day to make his point, and the priests, all day, unlimited time almost. They get to go first to prove their point. Um... They go through barbaric and torturous rites to, to, to encourage their God to listen. They cut and slash and bleed profusely. I don't know if they had human sacrifices that day, we're not told. But it was gory. And Baal was still not listening. And then at the end of the day, when everybody had kind of yelled his lungs out, and they were hoarse, and they were croaking around and stooping, finally Elijah had said, you know... You've had all your time. You've had opportunity. Baal must be on a journey somewhere. He must be on a trip. It's just not listening. Let's see if God will respond. And you know that they built up the altar. They placed the wood there. They had divided the bull up into 12 pieces, and they put it on top. And they took large jars, I forget the number, but a number, a, a, a number of them, and doused this sacrifice until there was no match in Elijah's pocket or flint or whatever or coal that he could have ignited this thing. Um, And he has a very simple prayer to the true God. He's not gashing himself or appeasing him. He just simply asks that God reveal himself. Any problems with that story? Is that how God wants to relate to us? That's how we have to relate to that. Okay, very good. Why? What is it about idolatry that appears that is so moving? And I would dare say even among us at times, what is it that we would like to do in order to believe in God? What would he like him to do? Power, right? Raw, unbridled power means you are, you know, you have something to do. Now God did it for them. Why? And I think you brought it up. Nothing else would reach them. Nothing else would reach them. And so everything is consumed, we're told. Even the water in the trench. All gone. Evaporated. Instantaneously. They all rushed those 
prophets of Baal and Asher down to the valley and they killed them. And then Elijah ran back up on top and he prayed. Although this time it didn't take one prayer, he prayed seven times. Maybe God was trying to say something there, I don't know. And it did rain. Um, Do we need to be careful? And we've got to wrap it up. Um, I think that we do need to be careful. Because in the end, I think the Elijah conflict plays out again. If we read Revelation, Armageddon. um, Some sources argue that, um, at least John Pauline in his book, uh, Armageddon at the Door, argues that Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo is not on a mountain. It is in the plain of Jezreel on a little plateau. But it sits at the very entrance to the pass that goes over Mount Carmel. And if one thinks about that, And that is a huge story in the Bible and relates that. One can say, maybe what God's trying to call our attention to is there going to be another showdown of the gods as time comes to an end. And what will be the difference? It will be, as we look at the character of God, do we really know who the true picture of God is? Because both gods will be there and one is going to demonstrate with fire and I can tell you, that will not be the true God. That's what's scary about this. If you like power, if you like seeing manifestations of miracles, not that they're not important, not that God does not want to work them on our behalves, but if that is what convinces you of the evidence of God's character, you are treading on dangerous soil. God wants us to believe about his character because we have read through his word and we know, based on the evidence, what his character is like. Have you tried to think, and I know, I know I'm a little over, but if you don't mind, I want, I want to do one other thing and not leave us on that kind of somber note. Have you thought about, or maybe I'll just tell you to, to, do, to go because many of us have church services to catch and I'll have prayer. Think about the character of God. What is it that we admire about him? We say that, but what does it really mean? What does that mean to you and I? I, I put down and I, had, I, I ran out of time. I had... 10, 15, 20 items about how good and gracious God is. What a person he's worth knowing. Um, I wish I had time to share with you, but think about that as you go your way today. Think about what is it that you value about the character of God. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, I thank you so much that you have demonstrated over a long, long time frames, to us at least, And in a variety of ways, how gracious, how loving, how kind you are. How you'll even come down and wash the feet of your enemies. How you'll forgive them while they're killing you. How you'll extend grace and forgiveness. How you want to heal us and make us like yourself. May we go from this place and may we learn to know you better. Know your character. We pray that you go with each person here throughout their new week and bless them. We pray these things in your name. Amen.